right, it's great to be back again tonight, open the Word of God together. Let's just bow for a word of prayer as we begin our time. Father, we do thank You for tonight, this opportunity to be uh, here, gathered around Your Word, to study it together, to interact with one another, to be used by You in this great creation of Yours, the church. We thank You for that. We ask Your blessing upon each one who is here, and may they be... uh, equipped for serving you in the way that you desire, all because they love you and and want to uh, be an instrument in your hands. So use us in that way, we pray in God's name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles tonight and turn in them to our study of the book of Ephesians. I want to spend our time tonight studying in chapter 3, And really, verses 1 to 13 is the entire section, although we're not going to even begin to cover any of that, really, in much ways tonight. I I said to us last time, as we think about our study of the book of Ephesians overall, we can't help but be reminded that this book is a book about and speaks to the reality of the true church. It's really an epistle of the Apostle Paul to the church about the church. And that is really simply to say that it speaks about what we know the church to be. It speaks about the family of God, those who have believed upon Jesus Christ unto salvation. There is no unbelievers in the church of God. There may be unbelievers in buildings that we meet in called the church, but there's no unbelievers in the true church of God, because it is a place of the saints. And of course, the Apostle Paul has addressed this idea of the salvation that brings us into the family of God from the viewpoint we started back in chapter 1, from the viewpoint of God. And of course, he lays out there all the blessings that we have been given because of our unity with Jesus Christ, because of what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. In other words, all because of God, all because God chose us and chose to exercise His grace toward us before we were ever created. Because God in His wisdom decided to exalt Himself through a redeemed people and thereby made a way for them to be redeemed. And therefore, through Jesus Christ, we are in subjection to Him. Because of our salvation, through which God wrought through His Son, we are in subjection to His Son, and we are His body in which the fullness of Him fills all. This is the reality of us who are called the church. And then we came to chapter 2, and we were given another glimpse as to this great salvation, but from another viewpoint. And in chapter 2, our viewpoint was from our spiritual deadness. In other words, the depth from which God had to bring us. God, who made us alive and joined us with His Son, we were unable and unwilling because of our deadness, because of sin, so that now, after God makes us alive in Christ, because of His doing, not only do we have fellowship with God, Not only do we have a relationship with the one who created us, at which we were alienated from before, but we have fellowship with one another. And this new community, or new race, as some theologians like to think about it, is a redeemed people, and it is called the church. And it's this reality, this idea, this concept, this creation of God that is on the mind of Paul, the church. In fact, Paul is so taken back by the fact and by this reality that he can't get past it. He he wants to talk about it here in chapter 3, and yet for the first 13 verses, he can't get past the reality of what God has done with him in light of the church or for the church. And so he takes a detour. He takes us on a journey of what God has done with him so that we also will live with that same exuberance, with that same excitement, with that same understanding 
through which we understand we are part of the church. We know through the words of the Apostle Paul here that this is, this is a massive thing because Paul says, just to kind of reference it here, we're not going to cover this tonight, but just to reference it in verse 8, he says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God, now get this, I mean, just let this slap you in upside the head with your understanding. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Think about that in your own life. As God has brought you into this new dynamic called the church, so that how we interact with Christ and through Christ with one another in this body called the body of Christ, the heavenly realms learn something about the manifold wisdom of God. That's an incredible reality that the Apostle Paul cannot get off his mind. And so in an ultimate sense, it is the church that we need to think about in all serious tonight. As we see Paul here describe what God has done with him for the sake of the church. And so I, I just want to draw our attention to this text, and I, and I want to read the whole passage for us, and then we'll just begin to really scratch the surface as we start tonight. Notice what he says beginning in verse 1. For this reason, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. You probably notice that here in this section, there is a word used that at least for us here in our modern Western world doesn't normally associate us with the church, or it really isn't normally associated with the church. It's the word mystery, mystery. Normally, when we think of mystery, we don't think of the church. When we think of mystery, we talk about some kind of book or some kind of media program that is filled with intrigue and unknowns about the plot or some kind of mysterious entity that is revealed at a surprise ending in a in a mysterious novel or movie it refers to a, a kind of spiritual entity if you will that is a hollywood version of evil that's not what paul means here of course in the New Testament, the original word that is translated mystery is mysterion. It, it, it means something that is beyond natural knowledge. Something that is outside of natural knowledge, but 
has been made known now by divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. And of course, Paul articulates that here in verse 5, that it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Paul says these words to the church in Colossae when he writes to them in chapter 1 and verse 26. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. He's talking about the reality of Christ and being in Christ. In other words, what Paul is talking about is something that in previous times was unheard of. In fact, it wasn't even thought of in the Jewish mindset or even having the possibility of it being desired at all. And yet now it's been revealed to believers. So that is to say that now it is an open secret. It's not a closed secret. It's not a secret with which no one has looked into. Now it's an open secret, something that was hidden in the past and now has been opened. And this is the idea that Paul is talking about here with these Ephesian believers. And he has already pointed to it in the previous chapters without using the language mystery, without using the word. For example, back in chapter 2, And verse 10, remember, Paul said, we are his workmanship, right? We are his workmanship. That's that's the idea of the church. We are the the building of God. We are those who have been made up by God, God, God's masterpieces, right? And we have been, verse 13, he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the same idea. That's the church. He's talking about the church. He's talking about not simply us individually, but all of us together as believers. And then he says, so that verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. What's he talking about? The church. The church. This new race, if you will, this new humanity, this new redeemed body of believers, the new man, it's the church. That's the mystery that is now revealed, as Paul is talking about, the church unified. That is the new, now open secret. And it is that which dominates the Apostle Paul's mind, because for Paul, the church was everything. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a minor thought. It wasn't a a thought that I think about one hour a week because I come to this building called the church and be with the people of God and say, I've been to church. For Paul, the church was everything. He is so blown away by the reality of the church and the gift from God that he would be given the privilege to be part of it to the glory of God. Paul can't even fathom this in his own mind because he knows who he is. Now, that whole idea has been on my mind for the better part of the last month. And I would say probably even beyond that in my own heart because as a Christian and as a pastor, As I look at the evangelical landscape of our time, it seems rather obvious to me that the majority of what is identified as the church doesn't think about the church in the way that Paul is thinking about it and his place in it. And I think this is a problem. I was speaking recently with the deacons and elders at our last Deacon's meeting as well as others that I'm discipling about this reality because for whatever reason, God has made me a person that continually is looking for the cause behind the effect. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and I just want to go over there for a moment. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 really into chapter 3, but in chapters 2 and 3, of course, 
the angel of God, Jesus Christ, really this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus is talking to the churches. He's talking to them, and he speaks to seven different churches, of course, we understand that, and I believe they are representative of the entire evangelical church at large in various ways because of what they're doing. They are certainly churches in and of themselves, but they represent the church as a whole. And some he commends, others he rebukes, and even condemns. And and I'm always shocked, I'm always wondering, I'm always thinking about the message that he gives to the final one. The church in Laodicea. Because he says to them in verse 15 of chapter 3, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That, that, that's quite an indictment. That's some heavy words from the Lord of glory, stunning to say the least, and incredible that he is saying it to the church. I mean, you certainly might hear these words in our ears when you talk about the world, but Jesus is talking to the church. It's an indictment that shocks me. And as I survey the evangelical landscape of our day, I don't believe we, the church, are far from that as a whole, if not already there in many ways. You say, why do you say that? Because the indictment, while being against the church, is actually against the people. Why do I say that? Because the people are the church. And I said to our men the other day, if the church is lukewarm, it's because each drop that makes up the puddle that we call the church is lukewarm. And so while we can look at the evangelical landscape as a whole and go, man, that's, that's a real problem, it does us no good if we do not look at ourselves individually. And the question to ourselves is this, where is it in my Christianity where I am lukewarm? Where is it in my own Christian life, what areas in my own Christian life is it that I carry myself in such a way that Jesus looks at me and says, you're neither hot nor cold? Maybe we ought to just call the lukewarm church the church of nominal Christianity. I don't believe there's a worse condition to be in as a professing Christian. Why? Because nominal Christianity is always disguised as mature Christianity. As Revelation 3 says, it carries itself as if it's rich when the exact opposite is the reality. You notice in verse 17 of Revelation 3, but you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. But you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Your view of self is highly exalted when the reality about yourself is that you're actually lukewarm. You're nominal. The Laodicean church had many nominal Christians, so much so that their collective character was revealed by Christ to be lukewarm. I'm certain there were mature Christians in that church, but the overall character of that church was simply that. You're just nominal. You think you're mature, you're not mature. The way you live is lukewarm. It isn't hot, it isn't cold. They were religious people. They had heard and embraced the truth about Jesus Christ. 
They had the intellectual understanding about what God had given concerning saving faith and repentance. They surely could articulate that truth about sin and about hell. And most were sincere with their words about their belief. In other words, they weren't faking it. They weren't, they weren't saying they were saved when in their heart they didn't believe they were saved. They weren't attempting to be fake. But while they were busy carrying on in their Christian activity, believing they were rich, believing they had become wealthy, believing they had reached it, they didn't need anything, they were actually rejecting the truth. They had their Bibles, but by their lives, how they were living in relation to the body of Christ, the church, how they were living individually in the puddle called the church was showing that in many ways, they didn't really believe what the Bible said. They actually weren't obeying it. They were simply nominal. They were lukewarm Christians. Laodicea is an illustration of that kind of church. The church of nominal Christianity. The question that kept coming to my mind as I was studying our text for tonight, and go back to Ephesians chapter 3. The question that kept coming to my mind was simply this is how we do, or how do we individual Christians not contribute to the lukewarmness of the evangelical church? How do we, as Christians, not contribute to the problem of the Laodicean church that I think is happening in evangelicalism today? And the obvious answer is that we ourselves not be lukewarm, right? That's the simple general answer. Well, not to be lukewarm yourselves, of course. We cannot be nominal Christians as part of the church. Which means that we need to understand exactly what the Apostle Paul is preaching to these Ephesian believers about the church. Because this is his prayer. Notice down in verse 14, he, he comes out of the parenthetical reality of verses 1 through 13, and he, he says what he started to say, but then got lost in this detoured rapture about what God is doing in his own life in reference to the body of Christ. This is what he really wants to say to them. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, verse 14, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant to you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Paul says, I want you to understand what God has done so much in you so that when it comes to the body of Christ, when it becomes to my body, the church, this mystery, you understand exactly what God has done with you in that and that you live your life out for it. How are we going to arrive at that? How are we going to arrive at that position as an individual drop in the pool called the church? Well, I think Paul gives us an example. He gives us an example by means of his own life and how he strives to not be lukewarm. And I don't believe Paul was any different than any of us as Christians. We like to sometimes put Paul on this high spiritual pedestal. He certainly was an apostle of Jesus Christ, and yet in a spiritual sense, he's no greater than we are. We're all children of the king. And he was like us as Christians. He battled with the difficulty of Christian obedience. 
A lot of debate as to whether he was saved or unsaved in Romans chapter 7 when he's talking about my, this is what my mind is saying and yet I battle with this. Is I believe he was saved and this is the Christian war. This is what happens with us. Uh, my mind and my spirit, I want to do this and yet I'm having this struggle on the outside and I'm having this war go on all the time. This was the Apostle Paul. He went through his share of discouraging times. He was tempted to be depressed. He got tired in the fight. He wanted God often to take it away. Get me out of the circumstance. But how was it that Paul stayed hot in the reality of his Christianity through it all? Well, he tells us here that he was awed by just being allowed by part. He was overwhelmed by the reality that God would allow him to even be a part of it. So I believe that instead of allowing things to overwhelm us, instead of allowing things to get us in the mode of coasting in our Christianity, so that we don't think we need much, we need to evaluate our lives and actions in light of who we are and what we belong to. Let's mark it down. We have to evaluate our lives first by what we are. First by what we are. Notice how Paul begins. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. We can just stop there for a moment. The Apostle Paul is patently cognizant of this fact. And the Holy Spirit obviously wants the Ephesian believers to be cognizant of that fact also. And that means that here we are as believers reading this letter in the Word of God, that God wants us to be cognizant of it. What is that? We are prisoners of Christ. We are prisoners of Christ. Wow, Pastor, that's profound. Yep. That's about as smart as I get. We are prisoners of Jesus Christ. Do you actually think of yourself like that? Oh yeah, I've been saved by God. I, I, I believed upon Jesus Christ. My faith is in Jesus Christ. Yes, I, I, I think in those terms. But do you think about it like Paul is saying here? I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus. I dare say we don't think like that, and the proof shows in our lack of seriousness, our lack of sober-mindedness with which we consider the church. We don't think of ourselves as a prisoner of Christ because we have often a lackadaisical, lukewarm thinking when it comes to the body of Christ, the church. We're not serious about it. How we live out the commands of our Savior in and through the church shows just how we think of ourselves in relationship to Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. How and why is Paul a prisoner? In other words, does he say this because he's writing this letter in prison? This is a prison epistle. He's writing from prison does he say it because he's writing it in prison, as if Paul is asking God, why? Why am I a prisoner? Why am I in chains as a prisoner? Is that what Paul's asking? Obviously not. Why? Because he gives us the explanation. And the first thing that he says is this, I'm a prisoner, not just in general, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The first thing that kept the Apostle Paul from becoming complacent, from becoming lukewarm in his outworking of his Christianity within the body of Christ and for the body of Christ, what kept him from becoming distraught in whatever God brought about in his life as a Christian was that Paul knew and lived by the reality of who owned him. 
I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. This was the first thing on Paul's mind. You can survey the letters of Paul. Look at them. In your own time, you'll notice that anytime he talks about his life, it's always in reference to Christ Jesus. It's always in reference to who he is in light of Jesus Christ. He's a bondservant of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22. He's an apostle of Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. He's a servant of Christ, Romans 1.1. 1, 1. A minister of Christ, Romans 15, verse 16. A member of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6.15. An imitator of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. The list goes on and on and on. What's the point? The point is that Paul saw his life being lived in relation to the very one who owned him. He lived his life in relation to the very one who owned him. And so he says, I am in prison, literally, I'm in prison. But I'm there for only one reason. I'm there because I'm a prisoner of Christ. Because God owns me. God does what he does for his glory and for the body through me. He owns me. I don't get to choose that. I don't get to arbitrarily decide. God's the one who makes that decision. The only reason my life is the way it is is because of Christ. So Paul's saying. You say, why is that important? Because until we understand and actually internalize that reality about us as Christians, then everything that goes on in our life and how we choose to live out our lives uh, within the the realm of what happens or, or what we think might happen or how we are choosing. Unless we understand who actually owns us and that is what is internalized in us, what becomes the outflow of our life is not the desires of Christ, but our desires. What becomes the outflow of us is not what God would have, but what we want rather than what Christ wants. And if we are living for what we desire, then we're just quickly becoming lukewarm, if not already there. We're just nominal. But once we, once we begin to think about the ownership of Christ over us, then we begin to forget about discouragements. We begin to forget about the discomforts and our own fleshly desires for ease begin to fade away and we begin to live for Christ and taking what Christ commands with all seriousness. Paul is about to tell these believers that he's praying for them so that they will understand who Christ is to them. Why? So that what he says in verse 17 would be true, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith and that by being rooted and grounded in love, they might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that they might be filled up to the fullness of God. You say, well, why is Paul praying that way for them to understand the church? Because Paul wants them to live out that understanding in the church. That's exactly what he says in verse or in chapter 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, you see his reference to that? I'm a prisoner of the Lord. He owns me. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Listen, you understand who you are in Christ. You understand you're a prisoner of Christ. You'll start to live for Christ. So that, the joy of their lives, so that that which occupies their thoughts, words, and deeds is not the stuff of their own comforts and the stuff of their own desires and the stuff of their own schedules and scheduling Christ into their life, but rather so that the outflow of loving obedience to Christ flows out of them. That their understanding of that and their usefulness in the church would be paramount for their building up of the body, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4. They cannot and must not be nominal in their obedience to Christ. Why? Because the 
maturity and growth of their brothers and sisters in Christ depend upon it. And so he begins by reminding himself of that reality in his own life. Paul says, for this reason, man, this is, this is incredible to me. I'm a prisoner of Christ. And he launches into this parenthetical reality in verses 1 to 13 before he ever gets back to this, for this reason. And so he begins by reminding himself of that. He's a prisoner of Christ. But notice, notice that he doesn't only mean that he is Christ's, but he also means that being Christ is what got him into the actual prison that he's in. In other words, I'm not only a prisoner of Christ, but being a prisoner of Christ is what gets me into the situations that I'm in. In other words, I'm in Christ, and then the suffering that I'm in isn't because of some wrong that I've done, but rather it's because of my relationship with Christ. Christ is everything. I think that's important for us to think about in our own lives. None of us have a, have a, I mean, we'd be odd if we had a personal affinity for suffering. Right? Oh, no, I'm a good Christian. I just love to suffer. None of us would ever say that. In our humanity, we don't like it. Because we don't like it, what do we do? It's very easy for us to work in our own Christian lives and do all kinds of things where we calculate things so that we avoid anything that might bring about suffering, anything that might bring about trouble, anything that might bring about in our life some kind of difficulty. For example, it can be a personal challenge to confront error in the life of a fellow Christian, can it? Confrontation. I don't like confrontation. I'd rather just stay out of it. And after all, I might face some backlash. I might face some ridicule from somebody if I, if I go to them as a Christian brother or sister in Christ and I begin to challenge them. We could, I could be sinned against. I could be ostracized because of it. Maybe that's happened to us. Maybe in the past we went to somebody and we challenged them with, with something about their own Christian life and, and we're trying to gain an understanding of why they're living in such a way and, and we're not trying to accuse them. We're actually going in a Galatians 6.1 standpoint. We, we who are thinking of ourselves and we're going to them and trying to help somebody and maybe it's happened to us in the past and we didn't like it. We were ridiculed and ostracized because we did that. So because of the potential for that, again, we avoid it. We actually begin in our Christian life to compromise the truth. Let it go, convincing ourselves that somebody else will deal with it. After all, we want to be gracious anyway. And so we say nothing when we actually should say something. We don't like suffering, so we compromise. We become a little more less hot, a little more lukewarm. But how would we respond if we thought of it like Paul thinks of it here? What if we saw the suffering in our life as a result of obedience to Christ? In other words, it's God who owns me. I'm a prisoner of Christ, and because of what I'm doing for Christ and for the body, whatever God allows in my life is okay. Is okay. In other words, I don't want to equate it with something I did wrong, but rather, if I'm simply being obedient to Christ, then whatever God allows is okay. This is what Paul's saying. If we think like Paul, then our suffering is for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. This is how Paul looked at his life. It was lived for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the one who owned him. So much so that whatever he did, and wherever he, the, whatever the outcome, he just thanked God for allowing him to be a part of whatever it was because of Christ. In other words, for Paul, being a Christian, Suffering because of obedience to Christ was an honor. It was an honor. It was for the church. It was for the growth of the church. 
I asked this before, do you ever think of your life like you're a prisoner of Christ? Well, I'll ask it again. Do you ever look at your life that way? That what happens in your life out of obedience to Christ is for the sake of the church, the growth of the church, not for your comfort. See, if you think of your life that way, you'll not remain lukewarm in your service to Christ. Nor, number two, will you remain lukewarm in your service to others. Look at what Paul says. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, notice, for the sake of you Gentiles. In other words, the reason Paul's in prison, certainly because it's been allowed by God, certainly because he's a prisoner of Christ, but it's also for the sake of Christ, because he's doing it in, order, in obedience to Christ, God's allowed it, but it leads him to do what he does for others. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ, and I live my life for the sake of Christ, and, and in living that way, I do it for the sake of you. I do it for the sake of the church. You might be asking, what does that have to do with this letter? Everything. There's everything to do with it. Because Paul is in prison for the simple reason that he has gone about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in saying that, he's preaching to the Gentiles and telling others that the Gentiles are in the kingdom of God, and that infuriated the Jews. Infuriated. That message, the Judaizers hated. They hated it. In fact, in Acts chapter 21 and 22, it's clear as to why they had Paul arrested. They had Paul arrested because he was preaching that Gentiles were included in the promises of Abraham. That's why he got arrested. That's why Paul's in prison. Because he preached the true gospel to people whom he's trying to have understand the reality of this mystery called the church. The believing Jews and believing Gentiles are fellow heirs of the kingdom. That's what he's preaching. And he's in prison because he preached that truth. He says, I'm suffering gladly for your sakes. I'm suffering for you. I was commanded by the Lord Jesus to go and to teach this. I, because I understand I'm a prisoner of Christ, I've been given that gift. It's this, this, this massive privilege that I have, the very least of all the saints, he says in verse 8. I followed that command, and so whatever God allows through that, whatever God allows in my life because I'm doing what He has asked me, I'm glad to do it. I'm glad to do it. Why? Because I'm not serving myself. I'm serving Him, and through serving Him, I'm serving you. About the church. What a novel Christian. What a novel Christian. That's not a lukewarm Christian. He knows his owner. He knows who owns him. He serves his owner no matter the cost. And in serving his owner, he serves others at the cost of himself. Is that how you think about the church? How you think about the body? I know my owner, and I'll serve my owner no matter what he does in my life, no matter what he allows, because in serving my owner, I'm serving his church. You see, the Ephesian believers are being reminded that Jesus Christ has died for them. And that the servant of Christ, the Apostle Paul, is serving and suffering for them. And that is a privilege, Paul says. Paul says, I'm privileged to do that. I'm doing it for your sake. I'm doing it so that you understand these things. I'm doing it because God called me to do that. He gifted me to do that. He equipped me to do that. I'm being obedient to do that. There's trouble in my life because of that. 
but it's for you. Is that how you think of the church? Is that how you think of your Christian life? In reference to God? In reference to the church? It ought to be. It ought to be. To allow other things to crowd out our service to Christ that seeks to be with and edify others. To do that is to become like the church in Laodicea. It's to be lukewarm. To be lukewarm. If we would just view what we are and who we are because of Christ, we would live our Christian lives like we have never lived them before. We would be sober-minded, serious, about serving the church. We wouldn't need somebody to implore us to, to go and minister to the body of Christ and serve the church and be with the people of God. We wouldn't need any of that. We'd just do it no matter what it cost us. We'd do it no matter what the challenge was for us, what it might cost me personally in my own creature comforts and other things, what, what it might mean for me in my life. I'd just serve. Why? Because that's the body of Christ. This is what God has for me. This is what God has for me to do. This is the body He put me in, and I'm doing it for your sakes. <clears throat> is not this exactly what the Apostle Paul says in chapter 4? Beginning in verse 11, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Why? To the building up of the body of Christ. For what reason? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Well, is that really going to help us, Pastor? Is that going to help us? Paul says it will. As a result, verse 14, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, craftiness, and deceitful scheming. <clears throat> We're not to be tossed here and there by all that foolishness that goes on in evangelicalism that we get so sucked into sometimes. We're to be serving Christ, speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, from whom the whole body being fitted together and held together for what, by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Listen, we can't grow the church being apart. Doesn't happen. What's Paul saying to these believers? Listen, you're... He, God has done an amazing thing by electing you before the creation of the world to make you part of His family. He has given you all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You, you are so rich beyond measure than anything this world could ever offer. So why are you so tied here? You were dead. You had nothing. You were in the grave spiritually. You couldn't get out yourself. You didn't want anything. You couldn't hear any spiritual truth. God had to open your heart. He had to open your eyes. He had to make you alive. And you're in it because of Christ. You're a prisoner of Christ. You don't get to choose what you do anymore. You're a living spiritual being now. Alive in Christ. And you have an owner called the Savior, and you're to live for the sake of others. Why? Because you're living for the sake of Christ, His body, the church. One day, God's going to snatch us all away from this place. We won't need that anymore. But right now, the angels are watching. Right now, the angels are watching, and they're learning something about the manifold wisdom of God through how we live. That's what Paul says. Paul says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church, through us, the body of Christ, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Really? 
Yeah, the angels don't know everything about God, and they're learning something about God's wisdom and grace as they watch us live in the body. So what Paul is saying is that living for Christ is everything. Because Christ is his all in all. Whatever God calls him to, he'll do it. He'll do it. He's not just going to he's not going to stay away from the body of believers for the sake of his own creature comforts. That's nonsense. <clears throat> he's going to pour himself into it. Why? Because he wants to see the body of Christ mature to a full man so that we all attain to that maturity. Love this this is this is mind-blowing if we understand that. Because we'll live differently. We'll exhort our brothers and sisters in Christ to live differently. We won't settle for no for an answer, or I can't, or I'm tired. Listen, whatever God would have you do, the one thing he wants you to do is be used in the church. You can't be used in the church if you're not with the body. You've got to be with the body. And that means it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take discomforts. It's going to take creature comforts that you can't do. Why? Because you got to sacrifice. Because to do those things means to be not involved with the body. God wants you involved. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. He's my owner. And what I do, I do for him and for the sake of those he puts me in their life for. Well, that's where it starts. We got a little point, a little way into it. Try to get some more next time. Let's pray. Father, an amazing thing that you would, you would make your body such a place that, <clears throat> that your wisdom is manifested in such that the heavenly places, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly place are learning things about you that they could not know that you have chose to not reveal to them unless they watch us. One crazy thought. But help us to do what you have asked. Help us to be sober-minded, serious in our obedience to you. Help us not succumb to easy excuses. Things that are about this world, but not about Christ. The Lord, the church is what you died for. Sometimes we don't think it's all that important, but you did. You gave your life for it. Help us to think like that. You own us. May we serve you in that way. To your glory we pray. In Christ's name, amen.